Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moz. My guest this episode is Dr. Tara Goddard, an assistant professor in the School of Urban Planning at Texas A&M University. There are many reasons why I wanted to talk with Dr. Goddard right now. One of the main focuses of her research is how social psychology impacts the way people drive. It's a field that's gaining momentum as cities and their advocates, many of whom are reeling from record traffic fatalities, realize that building safer streets isn't happening nearly fast enough and that bad behaviors by people who use them can easily trump even the best road designs. I also wanted to talk with Dr. Goddard because her field of study includes the impact of linguistics and semantics on transportation culture, which if you read Bike Portland, you'll know is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. I'm also someone who respects people with diverse perspectives, and I think Dr. Goddard has tons of it. She's worked in academia, earning a PhD in urban planning from Portland State University, which is where I first heard about her work, and she has a civil engineering degree from UC Davis in California. But she's also worked in government as a planner for the city of Sacramento and as a bicycle and pedestrian program coordinator for the city of Davis. Dr. Goddard has worked on the inside and outside of government, and she's also relatively active on Twitter, which, love it or hate it, does give one a certain dose of perspective. I also want to turn listeners on to an upcoming Portland State University webinar where Dr. Goddard will present her latest thinking on car culture, windshield bias, and a lot more. That webinar is free, and it happens Thursday, February 16th from 12 to 1 p.m. Uh, look for the link to register and learn more. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes. And with that, here's our conversation. Dr. Tara Goddard, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, but so before we get into some of the nitty gritty, um, I'm hoping people can get a better sense of like who you are as a person so they can understand where you're coming from a little bit more. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your, uh, and this is a question I love to ask all my guests, This, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about your sort of relationship to cycling or, and like personal mobility in general? Sure, sure. So I grew up in a really rural part of far Northern California. And so I did in a town called actually a community outside of a town called Susanville, California, which even a lot of Californians haven't heard of. Um, and so I did grow up uh, bicycling and walking to the little neighborhood school, got driven or drove, started driving to high school because it was about three miles. Although it's funny to think back, my dad was probably one of the only people in the entire town that would bike to work. And it was about seven miles and he would do it for exercise. And put on his spandex and get on his road bike. And, you know, at, at, at the time I had no idea it was such a radical thing, but it was. Uh, went off to school to uh, UC Santa Barbara because it was as far as I could get from my hometown and still be in California. And also it was on the beach, which is how, you know, an 18 year old is making those big decisions about where to go to school. And uh, UC Santa Barbara, for those who don't know, is really a very bike skateboard friendly place. It's probably one of the better or best, I think, bike friendly campuses. So immediately was also getting around that way. I got into transportation during a master's that I was doing at UC Davis and discovered that as a profession, um, really just discovered my love for transportation, partly because I was interested in being more sustainable generally and how do we make society better and of course transportation touches all our lives and and so that was just really interesting to me and being in Davis of course you know bike bike town USA it was it was everywhere I was getting everywhere by bike um, and so I did my program there and then went and worked as a transportation planner in Sacramento got the opportunity to do the be, be the bike ped coordinator in Davis uh, 
after that and was that for four years. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's the dream job. Why would you ever leave? But partly in that job, I, one, realized I was a research nerd. And that was just really what kind of gets me up in the morning. And I have so many questions I wanted to ask. Uh, and also there was a lot in that job that just realized, well, you know, if we build it and people still don't come, right? Or if people aren't using things the way we expect them to, or things aren't working the way, why is that? And so I just, there was a lot I felt like that I really wanted to understand more, which is also why I went back to school. So that's a very long answer to your question. Uh, for folks that aren't well-versed in the world of Dr. Tara Goddard, can you describe, and not in, in its full breadth, of course, because um, you, you have touched on some pretty pretty interesting topics in, in a lot of depth and, and breadth, um, but can you just describe sort of like, how do you describe the kind of research that you do? Yeah, so I really am at the nexus of the built environment and on kind of the social psychology and behavior aspects of how we move through the built environment. And I'm particularly interested in safety and the safety of people outside of vehicles, but because so much of the safety of people outside of vehicles is in the hands of people inside of vehicles, I do a lot of studying of drivers. So whether it's uh, behavior or culture or the way we talk about crashes is a big part of my research as I'm sure we'll talk about, that is what I do the most of. And so um, I've, you know, I'm interested in when that's happening in the safe systems, um, whether it's in like semantics and linguistics, whether it's in climate change, and now a little bit I'm looking at disasters and wildfire, but all within that overarching interest in safety and vulnerable road users as we often refer to them. Yeah, thanks for explaining the, the kind of research you do. There's just so, there's so many directions we could go given your expertise, experience, and your research, uh, and then given the kind of stuff that I do where I've been like sort of editorializing about this stuff and covering it from the media angle. But to just help us get focused, I'll start by just let's look at some headlines I've just seen like this week. Okay, so uh, in your home home state, the, the state, not your home state, the state you're in now in, in Texas there, in Houston just last week, I saw this story about how in the last month alone or so, police officers in patrol cars ran into three people and killed them that were walking, right? That, that is just tragic and super upsetting. And I just can't even believe the, the headline as I read it. But then their statements, they made their statements about the crashes. They were really, I mean, seemed to me very clearly blaming the victims. That, that, so that's like one headline I saw and one sort of story that as I'm, as I'm thinking about talking to you. Um, and then in Portland, uh, we've had, you know, record-breaking uh, pedestrian fatalities in terms of our yearly tally of road deaths. Uh, and so there have been, the, of course, the, the expected media stories where you have the local media person sort of sticking a mic in the face of someone from the Portland Bureau of Transportation and asking them, hey, Vision Zero is failing. What's going on? Why, why is this happening? Uh, but what they don't talk about in those stories almost ever is the role of the actual people who are driving the cars. Right. So that's another another note. And then just today, uh, one of our local stations did a story about recent safety upgrades on Southeast Division Street, which was so driving centric. They interviewed a business owner who has this long history of testifying at city council that a median island that they put in is just destroying her business. Uh, and a, a few other people who just were really mad about it. The whole framing just had this sense of like, this is a bad thing. This has been a bad thing for local people. Right. But what I thought was really interesting was that the B-roll the whole time showed these really dangerous behaviors from drivers, which were then never talked about in the actual 
coverage from the little anchor person on the street, which to me was just so classic. Like literally someone hit a median, like flipped their car over and the people were saying how they were very, very happy that the driver was still okay. And then uh, people parking in bike lanes and stuff like that. I thought that was just such an interesting disconnect, right? How is that connected to the bad outcomes that we keep having here in America in terms of road safety? Yeah, so great questions. The, the common thread through all of that really has to do with what I talk a lot about and what I study a lot. I usually use the term car culture. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the last just week or two since the study out of the UK came out with um, Ian Walker, Dr. Ian Walker and his colleagues, the moto normativity, which you know is a great term that kind of builds off the idea of say heteronormativity, uh, really the same idea, right? So what is the default? And in the US, as I'm going to be talking about in this upcoming uh, NITSI webinar extensively, you know that is our our default, and in, it's it's the system that we're in, and that we identify with, that we depend on, we built our way around it, and it's really really important because. And this is not something new, right? We've known this for a long time. And it's it's not the same in every country. I remember very early in my career, I mean, it's probably 20 years ago now, Dr. Peter Firth saying, he's comparing the US to the Netherlands. And there's this great saying where he says, saying you're a bicyclist in the Netherlands is like saying you're a toothbrusher. And his point was, of course you are. Like, it's it's what you do. Like, it's it's no big deal, right? It's, it's not an identity. And that's different than here, right? Where you have to kind of, it becomes part of your identity because we have, you know, the system that you, it's either the default or not, and you end up having to defend it or not. And it, it shapes our worldview or it shapes our understanding of what's possible. It becomes a scapegoat for things. So the business on division, this idea that a median is somehow super damaging to someone's business when, when it's, it's like, well, what is the effect that Amazon might be having on the business, right? or other taxation things or covid or are you even talking to your you know your customers and it has something to do with the median itself or is it attentional bias which is something i study you know it's the median happened to go in when these other forces are but that's what she's focused on she thinks it's the problem of her business right but it's this car culture world that makes us think that that's somehow tying to these real forces that are probably affecting her business so that's one piece of what you're talking about my colleagues and I have studied this question of language and how important it is in the way we talk about these. So, you know, we have this experiment where we you know, showed a thousand people. Um, there was three different versions of a, a simple, just very simple changes to the write-up of a news report of a pedestrian um, crash, as you would see. Um, and the first one was very much like the status quo reporting. And then we changed, you know, accident to crash. Uh, a driver hit someone rather than the car hit someone or a pedestrian got hit. And it actually affected in a very clean way, um, you know, clean from the sense of an experimental standpoint, whether people who they thought was at fault and, and what they thought should be done. That was one of the key pieces is what should be done about it. Is it, oh, they just need better education or like, oh, we should actually put in some sidewalks and lighting. Right. And also one thing that doesn't get talked about as much from that study, but is an important finding of also would they be willing to trade off driving slower and taking a little bit longer that and less people getting hit and hurt on that corridor? Also very important. And that is something that I, I had the chance to talk to some reporters in Houston about that with the people getting hit by police in particular. And police, 
just like everyone else and maybe more than the average person in some ways, spend as much or more time behind their literal windshields as the rest of us, right? So they're literal and figurative in the sense of the system of cars to get this windshield bias. And so are also prone to potentially having these kind of victim blaming of, oh, they stepped out or they shouldn't have been in the way or they're crossing where they shouldn't and not saying like, well, but it was a mile between crossings. You look at Houston infrastructure and I've spent plenty of time driving around Houston and to a lesser extent walking in Houston and the infrastructure is terrible. So to say, oh, well, they just shouldn't have done that. Well, but there's a bus stop on one side and a CVS on the other. What do you mean they shouldn't be crossing there? I know I know. I put a lot on your plate there at the beginning there, and I think you, you touched on a lot of stuff as well, but I wanna drill down a little bit to what I think is sort of the crux of of, of the debate or one of the one of the many uh, different crux of this debate, which can go a lot of different directions, is this idea of like the system versus people. Um, you know, like, do we fix, do we, do, should we focus on fixing the roads and the infrastructure or should we look inward and focus on changing culture and changing behaviors? It seems to me that just sort of traditionally in general, the DOTs have always really been the ones to push the individual behavior thing, uh, which to me has always seemed like sort of a cover your ass kind of move. So the natural reflex since the DOTs, which for folks who don't know, Department of Transportation's, so the natural reflex, if they're saying it's, it's individual behavior is the problem of why we have so many traffic uh, deaths and crashes, the reflex from advocates was sort of to swing to the other direction and, and sort of take on the mantle of, well, no, it's not individual behavior. It's the design of roads that you're putting out for, for those people to consume, which is leading to all these terrible outcomes. So I, I have a feeling that you're a bit concerned with where that balance is. Uh, and I just wonder, can you share sort of what do you think is the risk of focusing too much on infrastructure when we talk about crashes and, and safety issues on the road? Yeah, I really appreciate this question because I am concerned about it. It is something I've really noticed. And I think I want to say, first of all, I think there's a place for all of those. I think the biggest danger is to say that one or the other is should be our focus because all the pieces are important. Um, and I think, you know, certainly, especially in online debates, there's a, a tendency to want to say, oh, like we should do one or the other. And, and so I think we always need to get away from that. There's a role for all of that. And I think in particular, when you're talking about, say, advocacy versus agency folks versus researchers, like we have different roles to play or, or journalists or writers, authors, whatever. And so those are all should be complementary. That said, I do think that there's a few reasons that we shouldn't just be totally focused on the built environment. And I want to differentiate between talking about systems as the built environment versus systems more broadly, when systems could be systems of policy, systems of regulation, systems of law. Because um, I think that is a really valuable thing of taking into account those larger systems, which are really important. The problem with just focusing on the built environment is, is several fold. One, it's really slow to change. And if we are going to wait and rely on, well, let's just wait till we can give drivers all the safer signals with a built environment, we're going to be losing 40,000 people a year or more until that happens. Second of all, there's a lot of behaviors that are still happening that we can't just explain away with the built environment. All these, a lot of these other things also have to change in, in order for the built environment to change, right? Some of the regulatory things like the Texas laws that say, oh, all this money has to go first to highway uh, projects before it can go to other things. 
But a, a really important piece that I'm really focused on, and I think partly this is because of my interest in the social psychology pieces of this, is that these systems still rely on and are made up of people, right? And because I'm an educator who's focused on planners and engineers, and because I myself am a former practitioner as a planner and engineer, I'm really focused on that group. And so if we have those people who themselves have biases, or we have biases and these behavioral issues, but we're the ones making the planning decisions and the engineering decisions and writing the guidebooks and writing the documents, and we're not dealing with those cultures and those biases, then these things aren't gonna change either. So that's why I think it's also, we can't just be giving a kind of a like, oh, let's, let's just focus on the system. Well, systems are made up of people, so that matters too. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. If we agree that culture change is a big part of improving America's road culture, right? Improving car culture in America, however you want to put it. So we agree that behavior change is important. I'm worried that we don't really have, like, we've institutionalized infrastructure changes. We have a whole system of DOTs. We have projects. People, you know, you talk about infrastructure, people know who does that. It's like a known thing. We haven't done the same thing with culture change and behavior change. And, and sort of a, related to that is that the government, the agencies, the DOTs have always played like this massive role in the idea of road safety in America. But what if they aren't, they're just not equipped to deal with these cultural change issues. So, you know, what do we do? Who takes on that role or should, like, I wonder what you think about, should government be the ones involved in that, right? Um, and just what, what do you, what do you think about that? Like where is sort of the natural home to really have stronger uh, tools and, and programs to help America's road culture change? I, I, it's, it's a really, I mean, of course, this is the question, right? How do we affect this change and not keep letting this happen? I totally agree with you about this. Well, what are they doing? I, I just want to say really fast, just because it's directly related to what you said. As I'm preparing for this webinar next week, I was going through, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a one year anniversary of the USDOT's National Roadway Safety Strategy. And they just put out the allies in action is their statements from all these different partners. I just went through all the statements of the allies in action. In that, I found that they use, in all those statements, the word encourage six times, support 30 times, regulate zero times, mandate one time, require one time. And that was from Washington DOT. That's not even from any of these like automotive or tech companies, right? So we're still seeing a lot of this just kind of fluffy, you know, mealy mouth things that aren't really going to lead to any actionable change. And, and that is where I think we need to figure out how do we put real pressure and not keep doing this like pat on the back, okay, vision zero, road safety strategy, but it's not actually leading to, you know, any actionable change. Yeah, and I think that gets to one of the tensions I've been feeling, which is as I've sort of uh, teased out this idea that I said before about how like you'll see the local media or you'll see people ask this question of why is Vision Zero failing when they see like a record number of deaths, right? And it really it's getting to really bother me that the whole conversation is like looking at the looking at the agency and saying, why have you failed us when there's no one is ever looking in the mirror and saying, what can I do personally to help? you know, affect a different future. Um, so 
I mean, part of the problem with this is that when you bring up blame and who's responsible for things, people get prickly, people get defensive. Is there anything that you've done in your research that could help us understand a better way to sort of like frame this stuff in a way that doesn't make people so defensive so we can move past some of those, you know, some of that controversial, you know, tension? Yeah. Um, I do think storytelling is really important and thinking about how we're framing these. And I do think that's where, you know, maybe some of the work, like looking back in time, like what MAD did around alcohol, although of course we've now seen a swing back around alcohol, which is really frustrating. I do wonder too, and, and this is somewhere where I'm not an expert and I would love to talk more with like social psychologists and sociologists and public health people is where, what issues were kind of shame culture and guilt culture are more effective versus normalizing but shifting stuff like to make things more accepted but safer so let me give you a better example like with smoking it's like oh we we made that shameful it's i mean still a lot of people do it but it's shameful you gotta go off in your own little space to do it you know it's not you know or and even in this uk study they literally use smoking to compare with car fumes to show the difference between you know what people will excuse as far as kind of a secondhand smoke versus secondhand fumes whereas with and and this this came to mind because there's a thing in jesse singer's book there are no accidents where i actually disagree with an argument argument she makes about hiv and she says something about if we treated hiv as only an individual problem we would we would only preach um abstinence only education but it's actually not what we do part of dealing with hiv was talking about safe like condoms right safe sex with condom use and I actually think that is maybe a, an interesting thing to think about. It's not a perfect analogy, so excuse me, but thinking about how do we make something more like, okay, we're gonna be doing these things, but here's how to do it safer. This is a very unformed, unformed new idea I'm thinking of like, just as a comparison of totally ostracizing people for something that's really unhealthy versus saying like, this is something we all do, we all have sex, we all drive or whatever. Here's a here's a here's how to way you know here's how to make it safer, but I also I and this is again something I wanted to to respond to an earlier comment. I also think we still there's a lot to discuss when we're talking about individual behaviors between the kind of again what Jesse's book discusses a lot with like errors where we're we're driving to the built environment the environment tells us that it's okay to go fast we go fast versus a lot of the negative behaviors that people are doing all the time where people do know it's not safe and they're doing it anyways. They're prior prioritizing their own behaviors. And I think, again, COVID has really shown us that it's not a few bad apples. It's a lot of people who are willing to kind of behave badly. My, I've been using for years this thing, you do things behind the wheel you'd never do in the supermarket, right? You'd never run into someone, you know, aggressively. You'd never shout at someone. I'm not sure I can use that analogy anymore because all of a sudden people are doing things in supermarkets that I never thought they'd do, right? And so I do feel like some of the behavior we're seeing even worse on the roads, like with some of the guardrails off, no pun intended, like again. And so I do think there's this whole range of kind of individual behaviors that we are going to have to figure a different series of ways to approach and it's not going to be one size fits all. So some things are going to need to be like 
this is the this is socially unacceptable versus like here's a safer way to do this thing versus like no here this is something and again we haven't even touched on this but this is you are strictly liable like strict liability for doing this thing and if you do it you are going to be like severely punished i mean punished in like money and losing your car yeah i I like to go back to the the safe sex and safe driving uh thing not only is that you know provocative and interesting just on its on its face but um it actually gets to a way that i've framed things this thing a lot which is obviously i get pushback i try to make a big tent and try to appeal to people from all different sort of like political whatever agendas whatever so i'm aware that when i talk about being car free and not driving it's got very little juice beyond a small group of of people um so what i like to say is i'm not against car use i'm against car abuse so it seems like you know that kind of thing right of talking about hey yeah we're gonna drive people can drive but we're trying to get so that people don't drive like complete jerks and idiots and do all kinds of, of crazy things that you know that hurt people so um I, I wonder sort of on 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 that note where just in terms of describing this and i agree with you by the way that the guardrails have come off i think that is a big problem that people need to talk about the idea of of and i think it runs into other public problems or public safety problems we're having whether it's gun violence or other thing which is this sense of despair this sense of like people are just like screw it do whatever i want it, it leaks into other other things um so i wonder how where do you stand on the term um traffic violence uh, it, it's interesting way it's come up quite a bit more in terms of like actual advocacy documents and advocacy, um, like speaking and stuff like that. Like a couple of last session in the Salem, in the Oregon legislature down in Salem, uh, an advocate from the street trusts, which is our, our, our um, uh, nonprofit advocacy group here in, in Portland, they were testifying down in Salem to, to lawmakers and they used the word traffic violence in some testimony. And one of the, the chairs of one of the committees they were talking to, one of the representatives down there, like stopped the whole thing and was like, uh, could you please not use that? Why are you using that word traffic violence? I just think that's a little bit going, that's a little bit too much. I'm, we, we shouldn't be using that term, right? So it gets to this idea of like, how do we frame stuff? Do, what do you think about that term? Do you think it's a, a term that advocates should use to describe what's going on out there? Or is it too, is it too forceful and it just pushes people away? Like, do you have a sense of that? That is a really good question. And so obviously I'm someone who thinks about language and and framing and semantics all the time. And I have been using it quite a bit, and I, I do understand that, certainly I can understand how for some people that it could be triggering if they're talking about things where they're like, well, it's, it's not intentional. If they're like, I want to reserve that word for intentional cases, or when someone who you know, for the road rage incidents or for the the shootings, which have the road rage shootings have gone up significantly, you know, uh, which is something else that's just really alarming. Um, What I do, I don't know that I've seen a good term that really gets people thinking about, okay, it's not an accident. These aren't, these are preventable. These are not just the cost of doing business that we should accept but they aren't necessarily intentional like road rage. And I think the reason that people have been using them is because by their nature, traffic crashes are violent, right? The outcome is violent, they are severe. And even the most modest, moderate, especially when it includes someone outside a vehicle, is violent to the human body. 
So I would I would certainly be interested to know if people have suggestions for something that finds a middle ground. Um, but so far, I have been using that that term quite a bit. Okay, thanks. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me, just from from where I sit, that the field itself of this kind of transportation culture research, I'm not sure of a good term to use for it, but let's say the field that you're in, you mentioned Ian Walker, who did that great work around mononormativity, which I'll put a link in the show notes to. It's really interesting, uh, just new new study that came out. Um, Jennifer Dill, uh, another person at Portland State University, did stuff about like preference of where where bike riders would choose to go, more of like the psychology piece. It still seems to me, compared to studying signals and freeway on ramps and other things that this side of transportation research is smaller. You are biased on this, but do you think more research and science in and of itself being part of the conversation can maybe help, uh, you know, bring the temperature down a little bit and make these conversations more productive? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I am biased because I always think that more science is good science. Um, and certainly, you know, folks like Alexa Del Bosque in, in Australia, if you'll remember, she did that great study looking at how people view bicyclists as less than human, where so it was like the evolution of man thing, but instead it was the bicyclist to insect. You know, those are, you know, there's, so there's really cool science. Rachel Aldred in, in the UK has done some great work um, and others looking at kind of this this social psychology piece of, of how we view um, people. And, and Ian Walker's been doing this as long as anybody I've known where how even how we describe people outside the vehicle with like human versus kind of object language. But anyhow, but I think too, one of the gaps that would really help, and this is why I'm so interested in it, really help like you're talking, bringing down the temperature and more importantly, kind of really move things forward, which will help bring down the temperature is understanding how it affects policy making, how it affects decision making, how it's going to affect the AASHTO guide and the highway design manual and NHTSA rulemaking and these things that really need to change in order for safety to get better. I mean, we're always as humans going to have our challenges with tribes, right? It's like hardwired into our DNA. Um, but I think the more that we can do interdisciplinary work and learn from anthropologists and sociologists and you know people in other fields who do good work in understanding how to break down stereotypes of all kinds and how to improve these kind of intergroup relations i think is really really important and can be really helpful um, and we're just in many ways scratching the surface in the transportation field and it's why i am so interested in working with folks in those fields in my own work and it's really exciting to me cool you were saying about um you mentioned the police earlier, and we've talked a little bit about um, not just the importance of changing culture in terms of individual drivers, but working our way upstream into like how the system is, is impacted. And of course, police officers and police agencies are definitely part of the system. They're out doing traffic stops. They are uh, responding to all these crashes and stuff. So one thing I've always uh, been concerned about with this policing uh, part of the conversation is how they are like sort of the sole voice of what happens at a crash because they're the ones that respond. It gives them a tremendous amount of power to set the narrative. That's one thing. The second piece of that is that they put out a press statement from their own officers' accounts, which then gets regurgitated by the the news media, right? And so the news media runs these press statements, but they never say it's coming from the police, really. It's not really clear. So I think most of the public just reads these things and thinks this is like reported news, which then gives it another added layer of, 
authority and credibility when it really is just a government press release from a police uh, bureau. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on what can be done to sort of improve that police to media pipeline and how we can stop having these really terrible like news stories about crashes that can often set in and, and exacerbate and perpetuate these sort of like false narratives about traffic culture? So one, the work that we did with the, with the New Jersey police, where we were asking them, what's, one of the outcomes of that is we actually came up with some guidance documents aimed at police to say, you know, keeping it simple, focus on the facts, don't, you know, give out things to, you know, don't say things to the press when before the investigation is finished. You know, there's different guidance. And so I can um, share that with you to, to share in the notes. I think that's really important. Also, a reminder to journalists and with the understanding that, you know, journalism is under more pressure than ever. You're under huge time constraints, budget constraints, you know, beat reporters are juggling a lot. There might not be a lot of training. People are new, all those kind of constraints. But, but journalism, like your job isn't to just parrot what the police say. It isn't just to replicate the press release. It is to interrogate like what is going on there. Are there trends? Is this part of a bigger pattern? Things like that, right? So those are all things that can improve that process. Um, as well, we, one of the, a, a study that I'm, I've been doing here at Texas A&M and we're preparing right now so that we can publish is we've been looking at the crash report forms for all the 50 states. Every single one is different. I had no idea that there was so little standardization and so much variety in the way that even on-scene crash reporting gets done. So there is a huge burden, frankly, on police, on scene, for what they have to do to collect. And so you know, then on the scene, the, the officer is responsible for public safety. If there's, you know, directing traffic, making sure there's no additional things getting hurt, collecting information. Sometimes they're filling out these reports later from, in a different spot. Also something that I learned at a recent uh, traffic safety conference, which was mostly law enforcement, is hearing them, the pressure to report things in such a way that it, they get a conviction essentially so they'll often put things that are the easiest to prove. So rather than put what might really be all the contributing factors, they'll do something like departed the lane or, or failed to maintain lane position because that's, yeah, they ran, they left the lane. That's kind of irrefutable, right? And I'm not saying that they lied. It's not that they lied, that happened. That's just the easiest thing to write down because it's like, okay, in court, the, the driver's like, there's nothing to say there. But then we don't have good data and a good understanding of what really happened. And that's this might sound a little tangential, but it's all part of these larger issues and these challenges of what's being collected on scene at crashes, what's the training, what are the forms? So we need to be looking at how are we like collecting the data? What's the training happening with the police? And then what are these, you know, again, these the, the police have their own challenges with windshield bias that we all have. And and so these problems then, like you're saying, they kind of, um, you know, they get worse down the road, right? Like, so then it gets replicated by the, or that gets uh, repeated by the journalists and then it gets the, the public just assume that that's what happened or what the truth is and that victim blaming just gets carried on and then we just all kind of assume that pedestrians dart into roads and dart clothes everywhere and it's all their fault. 
right? So there's just huge amounts of work, I think, that need to be done um, with better training. One of the things that we've talked about, like, so again, another thing that I learned is that they don't all use like the same digital system to record things. Like there's vendors who will bid for a police like department or um, jurisdiction to use them as their online reporting form. It's like, well, let's better standardize, like there could be regulation that standardizes what gets collected on a scene that then can also be even the wording that it spits out in its forms doesn't victim blame for example. And there's also larger issues that I think are important to talk about with, say, that I'm, I'm interested in looking at with, say, police pursuits and, and when those are necessary. And so, but, and in a, a, the third study that I did with these colleagues is we actually were working with a group of New Jersey police and um, asking them, you know, how do you feel about using crash versus accident? And how do you feel about focusing on the driver? And there was a lot of general support, but they had a lot of the pushback had to do with one, just kind of institutional feeling they were pushing against institutional change. Um, and then some real concerns about liability, which we feel is unfounded, but was a huge perception issue. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there's there's so much complexity with the, the police issue, um, you know, not even touching on the issue of armed responses and biased, you know, racially biased stops and high-speed chases and all these things that I think are, yeah, are yeah. issues. No, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened at that answer because at least I know people are like working on this and this is a thing that you are actually engaged with. So that is good news. I'm glad to hear that because I just think it's something that could, there are some like, not easy, but things that could change. I think that at least we should try some pilots or something. I've always personally thought we should push the idea of having templates that we can maybe try that sort of like a Mad Lib kind of thing where you don't have That's exactly what I called it. I literally call it Mad Libs, like just fill it in the spots. Yeah. And it's easier for them. Like it reduces the burden on them. Like it's, I'm not, we're, I'm trying to make it easier for them. And that's so much of even what I say about like the policing stuff is let's make it easier on them. Let's make it safer for them and it will be safer for everyone. So, you know, I'm, I'm, trying to find ways that this this works. Same thing with the automated enforcement. We can remove the bias, we can make it safer for the people who are being policed, and it will be safer for the police themselves. So they should get on board. But then you have the case of like, I forget which town it is, I have this, this story saved where, you know, they were told to not do ticket for minor offenses. And then the police chief says, well, we're going to ignore that because it's been bad for morale to not do enough ticketing. And it's like, so there's some real deep culture things that need to change as well. But um, but like uh, equiticity, I don't think I'm probably not saying it right. And my apologies to Oboy Reed. Um, you know, they've been doing some really great work with uh, identifying ways to do automated enforcement in ways that are, you know, just. And so there is work being done in this area. And I think you'll hopefully see more in the near future. Yes, well said. I, I appreciate that. Um, okay. Let last couple things here. Um, if you, I know one of your jobs is to educate, you see yourself as someone who's educating city planners and road engineers. That's a big part of why you do the work you do. If you were standing up at a conference in front of all of them, maybe you get the keynote at Transportation Research Board, you know, or something like that. Uh, what would be sort of your top thing you'd want them to leave with? What would you want to tell them? That's a really good question. Wow, I, I mean, I'm never speechless. I have to think about that. 
that's a lot of pressure. I mean, it's basically just, you know, quickly synthesize all of the body of work you've done into the most salient piece, right? Like, how, how hard is that? <laughs> I know, right? I guess, I guess I would say that we can expect and demand better of ourselves and our systems. And that doesn't mean taking on our entire system, but just our little piece of that, whatever that is, and just fight that fight. And that's enough. And also find ways to find balance and the things that bring you joy and give yourself grace along the way. Well, Dr. Tara Goddard, thank you so much for talking to me about all this stuff. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great to chat with you. That was Dr. Tara Goddard, an assistant professor in the School of Urban Planning at Texas A&M University. Thank you so much for listening. And to all of you who support Bike Portland, thank you very much. It's your financial contributions that make our work possible. And if you're not a subscriber yet, please do sign up as soon as you can at bikeportland.org support. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss, And until next time, I'll see you in the streets.